is. Have you ever wondered who Jesus is? You know, we all have a different description for him. But I think it's good for us to figure out, well, who does Jesus say that he is? And the first week we heard that he was the resurrection. He brings life to dead things. Okay? Anybody here ever feel dead? You know, every Monday morning, yeah. You know, you feel dead. And, and Jesus comes to bring life. Okay, last week we learned about he was a good shepherd. Anybody here ever do anything stupid? You know? You know, it just shows that we're sheep, huh? And we learned that sheep are not the most intelligent animals on the planet. And Jesus comes to be what? The shepherd, because sheep need a what? A shepherd. Okay, and so we need to be told where to go, where to eat, what to do, and and how to live right. And so Jesus becomes the shepherd. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus being the light of the world. Now, it's interesting because we find in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Have you ever wandered around sometimes just not knowing what to do next in life? Not knowing how to live life, not knowing what decisions to make? Well, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And if you follow him, you will what? Never walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. If you follow Jesus, you'll have the light of life. You'll know where to turn left, where to turn right, how to do things right, and how to avoid the things doing wrong. Uh, now, when we talk about light, what's the contrast to light? Darkness. How many of you, when you were kids, were afraid of the dark? How many of you, now that you're adults, are afraid of the dark? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hasn't changed, has it? In fact, when you were a kid and you were in bed, where did the monsters live? Two, well, there were two places. One is under the bed, and where was the other one? In the closet. Now, it was miraculous. If you closed the closet door, the monster could not get out. Remember? You know, the closet door had to be closed. And we somehow thought the monster can't get out because he must not have opposable thumbs and he can't turn the knob. I don't know. Uh, You know, I'm sure it wasn't quite that critical for us when we were thinking about it, but that's kind of the way it goes. And also, if he's under the bed, as long as there was a nightlight on, he could not escape from under the bed, right? Now, if you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you stood on your bed and you leaped far enough away to where he couldn't reach out and grab your leg, okay? Darkness is scary, isn't it? Okay? Now, we kind of grow up and get older and we think darkness isn't scary. But I want you to always live in, in light of the fact that darkness is always scary. When you think about bad things happening in the world today, you know, when you think about getting mugged, you know, you can get mugged in the daytime, I know. But it's more likely that you're going to get mugged at night, right? It's more likely that bad things are going to happen at night. I remember when I would stay out late, my mom would always say, what are you doing out so late? Nothing good happens at night. And I thought, well, I don't know, I guess, you know. And, but nonetheless, I stayed out late. But we think that, 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 that darkness brings bad things. And generally, it does. Generally, darkness brings bad things. Now, we contrast two things here, light and darkness. Now, when we contrast light and darkness, there are two entities in the Bible that are... Uh, kind of associated with each one of those. Now, Jesus says he is what? The light of the world. So we associate Jesus with light. Now, there's also a prince of darkness out there that the Bible refers to, and his name is? Satan. Satan. Okay, so Satan is the prince of darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. And we find those two contrasting subjects frequently in the Bible. Now, in Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, the New Living Translation puts it this way. 
And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may what? Turn from darkness to light. People need to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to what? To God. Okay, so we have this darkness and this, and this light contrasted once again in Acts chapter 26. And so the, the apostles are being sent to the Gentiles so that they can turn from this darkness and the, so that they can find the light. Now today, we're going to look at the, the context of John chapter 8, verse 12, and where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Do you know where that, what, what that's on the tail end of? Anybody know? It's on the tail end of a story about a woman caught in adultery. Anybody know what adultery is? That didn't get the shocking reaction I thought it would. Anybody know what that is? That's when somebody that is not married is having a sexual relationship with somebody who is married. Okay, got it? Okay, now, she's caught in adultery. I missed that, but I want to get it after the service. Okay, uh, But she's caught in the act of adultery. Thank you, Gus. Boy, show me a little love here. Come on. Let me know that you're with me on this. Okay? So here, that's the end of the story. where he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, the beginning of this story is, is interesting because we're going to see throughout this whole story, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, the law. And we're going to see what the law does. Okay? What it shows us. Then we're going to see the love and what Jesus does for this lady. And then we're going to see in the future, we're going to see the light and what the light brings to us, okay? So say it with me, the law, the love, the light. Okay, here, one, time, one more time. The law, the love, the light. Okay, we're going to see those three things today in the story. So let's see what, first of all, the law reveals. The law reveals our what? Guilt. Okay, the law reveals our guilt. How many guilty people do we have here today? Anybody here ever mess up? Anybody you need to do something you're ashamed of? Yeah. Okay, we have some people here. Now, it says this in verses 2 through 6. You guys are going to have to settle down. Okay, because I'm really interested in what you're saying. <laughs> That's the sad part. I really want to know. Okay, inquiring minds. I don't know. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 6 says this. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. Now, this was the general practice of Jesus. He would assemble at the, at the temple courts, and he would sit down, and he'd teach people about the word of God. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Okay? They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the, and some translations say, the very act of adultery. They caught her in the act. Get my drift here? Okay, caught her in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, not her, him. They were trying to trap Jesus, but they were using this poor woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, according to the law, what did the law say about a woman caught in adultery? That they would stone her. And I'm not talking recreationally, okay? I'm talking about they would actually throw rocks at her until she was dead. Okay, throw rocks until she was dead. We, I know, I didn't think that would get that kind of reaction. You guys must have too close an association with what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm just going to say that. Okay, now, adultery was one of the three worst acts of sin that's prescribed in the Jewish law. Okay, one of the three worst. 
And so adultery would require, it would require that the lady be stoned. Now, what would happen to the man? Well, ladies knew that, and men didn't have a clue. And men thought, oh, no, we get stoned too. No, it didn't happen anything to them. Kind of a double standard, right? Okay, I, I, I'm just going to say, in the culture of the day, there was what we would consider today, in our culture, a double standard. I'll be straight up with that. Okay, so, but according to the law, she is what? Guilty and deserving of death. Okay, now, remember, they're not really so concerned about her. They are concerned about her, but only as they use her as a pawn to get to Jesus. Now, what do they want Jesus to do? Now, he could say several things here, couldn't he? He'd say, oh, let's give her a break. You know, let's not, let's not, let's just forget it. And if he did that, what would they accuse him of? Having no regard for the law of Moses. And they, therefore, they would discredit Jesus in the eyes of the Jewish people. That's what they were trying to do. So they knew that he had, in their eyes, he had two options. One is to excuse her, the other would be to condemn her. Now, what would happen if he condemned her? He would, yeah, she would be stoned, and he would be seen as what? Unloving, okay, unforgiving. And that would discredit his entire ministry, wouldn't it? Because what did he base his ministry on? Love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness. And so, therefore, he would disqualify himself there. So they thought, man, as they're conjuring this whole thing up, they got, they got her, okay, and they're thinking, we got him too. Because there's only two options that he has. Now, don't ever fall into this idea of either or thinking. It's either this or this. Okay, and we usually pick two extremes, right? There's a ton of things that can happen in the middle there, and we're going to see what happens uh, with Jesus. Now, so, when, and what's wrong with this lady? Is she like us? Is she like us? Have we ever done anything wrong? You know, one of, you know, nobody wants to admit that. You know, when I talk about that, when I talk about all of us have sinned, all of us have done wrong things, it gets real quiet. You know, I, I, get, I get visual pushback from you. When I say, you know what, in the eyes of God, we are not good people. You know, everybody goes, and they kind of look at me like, you know, I don't, I don't like coming to church. Well, I want to welcome you to Marina Church where we want you to feel good about yourself. And so, but not really. <laughs> now, now, the law does what? It reveals our guilt. If there were no laws, we would not know that we had broken them, right? So if there was no law that says you shouldn't commit adultery, she wouldn't know that that's wrong. So God, in his infinite wisdom, has given laws so that we know when we cross the line, when we know that we've done wrong. Now, most of us would say, I'm a good person. How many of you would say, I'm a good person? Okay. And how many of you would say, Pastor Mike, you're a good person? More people. Oh, oh. <laughs> I like you. How many would say, now that I've primed you, how many would say, Pastor Mike, you're really a good person? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and, and most of the people we know, how many, your wives, your husbands, your kids, they're good people, aren't they? Well, let's take a look at how God sees us. Okay? Now, God, does God love us even in our sinfulness? Yeah, he does. So don't get me wrong here, but I'm just going to give you four of the Big Ten Commandments. How many of you have ever told the lie? Raise your hand. Be proud. Well, don't be proud, but be, on, but be honest. Be honest, okay? How many of you ever told a lie? Okay? I've lied. I've told lies. I told a lie once, okay? When I was really young and I didn't know better. No. We've all lied, haven't we? Okay? We've all lied. Okay. How many of you have ever stolen anything? 
Not so many. How many of you have a church pen at home? Yeah, how many, how many church pens do you have at home? That makes you a what? A thief. A hoarder. <laughs> hoarder. How many do you have, Sue? <laughs> you have to have a lot of pens to be a hoarder. Okay. Okay, so we've all, could we honestly say we've all stolen something at some time? Okay, yeah. Okay. Now, how many of you have ever looked on someone from the opposite sex and thought lustfully, don't raise your hands, okay? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But just for your own assessment here, how many of you would say, I've looked at somebody in the opposite sex and kind of lusted after them? Okay, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Please zip it. Okay, okay. But I would say probably, okay? Now, that's three of the big ten. Let's take a look at one more. How many of you have ever taken God's name in vain? Now, not as a cuss word necessarily, but as a using it for no good purpose. That's what vain means, using it for no good purpose. Like, like you say, you get frustrated, you say, oh my God. And we don't say that anymore, though, do we? We say, OMG. And people say, what's a G stand for? Gosh. That's Christian cussing, you know. And that's all I'm just going to say. I'm just going to say. So what does that make us? Now, we've all admitted probably to, and here, if you've never used the Lord's name in vain, I'm going to suggest you've never raised children and you've never golfed, okay? Okay, but, but we, have, we have that. So what does that make us? It makes us lying, thieving. Oh, what is it when you take the Lord's name in vain? What's that called in the Bible? Blasphemy, blasphemy, okay? So we're, and what does, what does Jesus say if we've lusted after someone? We've committed adultery. He, yeah, he takes it to a whole new level. So if we've admitted to those four things, and we've only covered four of the ten, if we've done those four things, that makes us a lying, thieving, adultering, blasphemer. Wow. Now, how does that sound? Okay, let's be honest. We have sinned, okay? So when I say that we're not all that good, you know, in the eyes of God, it's true. Because the law does what? It reveals our guilt. Now, why is it important that we see ourselves as sinners? Because we are. It's honest. Okay. But unless we see ourselves as as sinners, we probably will not see a need for a Savior. If we do not see ourselves as sheep, we might not sense the need for a shepherd. And so I think it's vital and important for us. And the Bible is good. The Bible is really good because it reveals several things. It reveals who we are, okay, who we truly are. And we just looked at four of the big ten, right? And so what have we concluded? Let's just say this kindly about us. We're sinners, okay? We've done things wrong according to the law of God. And so, therefore, we need a Savior, somebody to rescue us from that mess because there's a consequence for that, right? There's a consequence for this guilt, okay, that we have because we are guilty, okay? Now, Let's take a look at the love, okay? The law, the love. Now, what does the love reveal? It reveals God's grace. God does not give us what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve the punishment for our sinfulness, right? And if we take that to the extreme, when we die, we will spend eternity separated from God. He lives in heaven. Where does that leave for us? Hell. Okay? There's heaven and there's hell in the afterlife. And so if we are thrown out of heaven because of our sinfulness, then we're going to reside in hell. Now, in John 8, 
verse 6, the second part of verse 6, it says this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, let's set the stage here. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What do you think she's wearing? I hope she grabbed the sheet. Okay? I hope she grabbed the sheet and wrapped up. Don't you? But nonetheless, she is out in public. She's being drugged down to the temple courts, and she's standing in front of Jesus with a sheet around her, and she has to feel what? Shame. She has to feel shame. And here these guys accusing her, telling them all the dirty details of what she's been doing, and she's standing before Jesus, and she's got to be shaken in her boots. Well, she doesn't have any, but, um, <laughs> but she has to be shaken. Now, Jesus does this. But Jesus, they, they've accused her. She's caught in the very act of adultery. And we're going to get Jesus because he's going to say either she should be condemned or she should be let go. Oh, we've got him right where we want him. And now they're kind of smiling and they're waiting for Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Oh, don't you wish you knew what he was writing? Yeah, because we have all these stories that are made up about what he could be writing. Now, I want you to, I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson here because the New Testament is written in the Greek language. Now, this word that is translated right is really the word katagraphin. Now, graphin, graphin is the Greek word, and it means to write down. Okay? If you're taking notes today, you're graphining. I don't know if that's a Greek form of that, but you're graphining. You're writing down, right? Now, katagraphin means to record something against someone, to write down against someone, okay? To write down against someone. So now, what could Jesus be writing here? Katagraphin, he's writing down accusations maybe against the people that have brought her. And Bob, Larry, and Joe have brought her and said, hey, we caught this lady in the very act of adultery. And he writes down, Bob, and he makes a little dash. And he writes down some things about maybe what Bob did last week. I didn't mean Bob here. Sorry, Bob. Yeah, Bob, your old, much older father, grandfather and great-grandfather, whatever. Okay, but write down, Bob, I saw Madison punch you, and I thought, man, that's just kind of rude. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, he writes down what Bob did, and then there's Joe, Dash, writes down what he did maybe. And then there's Larry, Moe, Joe, and all of, all of his buddies. And he's writing down what they did. And, and it's interesting because katagraphin means to write down against. Write down an accusation against. Now, uh, so he gets done. And it's interesting because as we read through here, we find that when he bent down, he started, they, they, they started leaving. They started walking away. And pretty soon there's nobody left because he's written down all their names, I guess, and written down everything that they know. And, and so they've, they've got probably the older guys left first. You know why? Because they had a lot more time to do a lot more stuff. And so, and Jesus probably got writer's cramp. I don't know. But uh, he, he writes that down. Um, now, Jesus is who? God in the flesh. And what did he know? Everything. He knew everything about every one of these guys that brought this lady here. And pretty soon there's nobody left. Uh, and so when they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, uh, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. There's a few people left there and they, they're saying, oh, okay, if you're without sin, and he might've looked down on the dirt again. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just making this part up, but I would do this. 
I would look around and there's maybe a handful of people left and I'd, I'd look down at the dirt and say, oh, oh, oh. And pretty soon they would, and I'd just say, okay, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. If you're without sin. Now, this, this term here that's, that's translated for us, without sin, it doesn't mean without doing the act of sin. What it means is I've never even thought of doing sin. Now, how many of you have thought of doing sin and not done it and felt, oh, yeah, I'm a champ? You know, what Jesus is saying here is a person who did not do the act and never even thought about doing the act, never even thought about it. If you're that kind of person, you throw the first stone. You throw the first stone. And they go, oh, you know, pretty soon they're wandering away. Now, uh, verses 8 through 11. Uh, let's, let's, now, how many of you have ever done something that you accuse other people of doing? You know, have you ever lied? Yeah, we've all lied, right? And, but there are certain kinds of lies that are acceptable. Have you ever been in a crowd of people and you know somebody's going to kind of approach you and kind of, kind of, uh, take up your time? What do you do? There's two things that you generally do. One is you walk fast. If you walk fast, you look like you're going somewhere with a purpose, and people probably won't bother you as much. But if you don't walk fast, and you know somebody's about to corner you and talk to you for far longer than you want to talk, what do you do? You grab your cell phone and hold it up to your ear. (laughs) Maybe you haven't thought of this. I'm looking around the crowd and saying, ah, and I'm seeing the eyes go wide and go, ah, that's a good one. Yeah, I'm going to do that next time. Don't do it because probably as soon as you do that, somebody's going to call you and it's going to ring and you're going to go, oh, uh." okay. So we've all done things that we accuse other people of doing. Now, in verses 8 through 11 here, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, notice what happens now. You know, because he's already said, hey, he's without sin, cast the first stone. Now, he starts writing down again. And those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? And she's got to be breathing a sigh of relief at this point, don't you think? However, she's still in the presence of Jesus. And he asks the question, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir, she said. And she's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because what can Jesus have said? I'm here still, and I condemn you because you are guilty. And I would imagine in my mind, if I'm her, that's what I'm expecting. But notice what Jesus says. Then neither do I condemn you. Oh, the love of God is expressed in his grace because what does she deserve? She deserves to be stoned to death. That's what the law requires. And it reveals her guilt. And she's guilty, right? And Jesus says, ah, I don't condemn you. Boom. All of a sudden, she's face to face with this tremendous love of God and the grace that he has given to her. Now, what is grace? Grace is not giving someone what they deserve. Okay, Letting them go free for the offense that they have committed is what forgiveness is. And that's a gracious act. Jesus, in his grace, says, I don't condemn you anymore. Neither do I condemn you. By God's grace, you're not the person that is defined by the things that you do. Okay? Have you ever thought of that? You know, I'm a lying, stealing, thieving, blaspheming adulterer. You know, Jesus doesn't define you that way, even though by the law, that's what is required. What he says is, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And he gives you the grace 
Okay. Now, in Re- Revelation 12, it calls Satan the accuser. And I'm going to be honest with you. You have someone around that is going to remind you of all the wrong things you've done, and he's going to accuse you of it, and he's going to make you feel guilty. You know what Satan does? He says, hey, why don't you do this? And it's something just crazy. You know, why don't you uh, do something sinful? Okay. And he says, and he whispers in your, nobody's going to find out. Nobody's going to know. Only you. And you're not going to tell anybody. So go ahead and do it. You'll never be caught. And then you go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, boy, I really want to do this. Okay, I'm going to do it. And you do the sinful act. And then you know what you hear from Satan? I'm going to tell everybody. He is not your friend. He is not keeping your confidence. He is not going to do that for you. He's trapping you just like these guys tried to trap Jesus. And he's trying to discredit you, discourage you, and ultimately he wants to uh, kill you. He wants to uh, bring death to you. So Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but there is one out there that does. Now, have you ever gotten a ticket, gone to court to fight the ticket? Because who goes to court? All innocent people go to court. And there are so many innocent people in our world today that get tickets from mean police officers that just have a quota to achieve and that really don't care about you and they really don't care about the law at all. And after all, I was only going seven miles an hour over the speed limit. I don't deserve a ticket. So you go and you go to fight the ticket. Now, what do you say when you get to court? I'm innocent, Your Honor. I did not do that. And if you ever go to traffic court, that's what you will hear. I'm innocent. I didn't do that. I'm innocent. I didn't do that. I'm innocent. I didn't do that. Now, what would happen if you were like the 15th person in traffic court, and all of a sudden, he calls your name, you go up, and you stand before the judge, and he says, how do you plead? Guilty, Your Honor. And he says, what? Say that again? Guilty, Your Honor. Why would you say you're guilty in all these innocent people here? Why would you say that? Because I'm an idiot, Your Honor. He says, say that again? Well, I'm an idiot. No, no, say that really loud. I want everybody to hear. Uh, I don't want to say it. I don't want to, you know. And he finally said, yeah, I'm an idiot. I was speeding. I was going way too fast. I was unsafe. I'm guilty, Your Honor. And all of a sudden, he looks at you and he says, bailiff, get that guy out of here because I don't want that bad guy influencing all these innocent people. Ah, and all of a sudden you go free without paying the fine. That's the grace of God. Okay, that's how God shows his grace to us. Now, don't take that verbatim and don't go to traffic court the next time and just say, yeah, I'm an idiot and hope to get off. Because what he'll probably say is, yeah, you are, pay the fine. But God's grace lets us off, for the, it gives us grace and forgiveness for the things that we've actually truly done wrong. Now, what did Jesus not say here? It's interesting because Jesus didn't say, oh, you're forgiven. You know what? I really understand that that's just the way you are, young lady. I know that your dad didn't love you and you didn't get all that nurturing at home and and it's caused you to think differently about men and you're looking for love in all the wrong places and you're trying, trying your best just to get love. I understand that. Now, what I want you to do is just go next week and just try to cut back. You know, just try to cut back. Maybe just commit adultery twice next week. And then the week after that, maybe just once. Try to taper off. Jesus doesn't say that. Neither did he say to us. 
He says, neither does he say, I know that you struggle with lust. I know that you struggle with lust. I know that you like to look at stuff on the, on the internet or whatever. I know that. But just, you know, I understand that you're just a red-blooded guy. But just try to maybe not do it on Sundays, you know. Maybe the other six days. And then, you know, just try to taper off. Just get better, you know. I, I don't expect a huge turnaround here, but just get better. You know, do it less. He doesn't say that. If you're an overeater, he doesn't say, you know what? Let's, I understand why you do that. You have a low self-esteem and you have all of this stuff working against you and you're just unsure of who you are and what you're about. And so therefore, I just, just tonight, just tonight, try not to eat the whole box of Twinkies. You know, just tonight. Let's just cut back on that and maybe get better and better. And then to, to, to those of us who gossip, he says, you know what, I understand that you don't feel good about yourself, and I understand that, that you, if you know stuff about other people, it brings meaning to your life, and, and when you say it, it makes you feel important because you're not really, you don't feel that important to people. Uh, but, but just try not to do it on the holidays. You know, when you come to church, maybe cut back a little bit and just be better. You know, I'm not looking for perfection here. Just be better. Notice, Jesus does not say that. What does he say in verse 11, the second part of it? He says, Jesus declared, go now, go now. Now, he has a sense of urgency here. How do you know it's a sense of urgency? Because he says, now, go now. He doesn't say, hey, think about this for a few weeks, pray about it, you know, be convinced finally. And, 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 you know, he says to the lady, you know, Think about your adultery and how it's affecting you, maybe your family and, you know, all this stuff. Think about that. And, and somewhere down the road, come to a decision. He says, no. He says, go now, right now, and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say taper off, does he? He doesn't say get better, you know, and slowly work toward it. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Because when we're confronted with the grace of God, it's a go now moment. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, he has urgency because now she is what? She is trapped in darkness. And when he says now, that changes everything for her. Because he says, change your behavior, your secret life, your adultery, for all of us, for maybe our porn addiction, maybe materialism, maybe anger, and maybe it's just unforgetfulness. You know, we don't even think about stuff. He says there's that behavior, but there's this belief that goes along with it. And that is shame. And there is, well, I don't like myself. And we have all these excuses because of our belief system that causes us to do all of these things. But Jesus says to us, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Because you've been confronted with the love of God. The law reveals our guilt. Love reveals the grace of God. And now let's look at the third thing. The light reveals what? Our hope. The light reveals our hope. There's light. Have you ever seen light at the end of the tunnel? What does light at the end of the tunnel represent? Hope. A whole new future. There's light at the end of the tunnel. I've been in this darkness for so long. And all of a sudden I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I go, oh, things could be better. It's going to be better. Notice in verse number 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Now this is how he concludes this whole episode with the lady caught in adultery. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus said, I don't condemn you, you know what happened at that point? He didn't become just the light of the world. 
he became the light of her world. All of a sudden, she saw light at the end of the tunnel, and Jesus was the light of her world. Not just the world, but her world. It was a personal encounter with the grace of God that changed everything for her. She could have been dead by this time, and now she has hope for her future. Go and don't sin again. Leave that life of sin. Yeah, I could do that. And he says, yeah, as long as you walk in the light, you will what? Never walk in darkness. She had walked most of her life in darkness. And now he says, there's relief for that. And she says, wow, he is not just the light of the world, but he is the light of my world. In John chapter 12, verse 46, it says this, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You know, when we choose to walk in darkness, you know what the choice is? I know Jesus has a light, but I'm not going to follow the light. I'm going to walk in darkness. I'm going to choose to walk in darkness. And that's a sad state because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll never have to walk in darkness. You can have the light of life living within you. John 12, 46 says this, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Stay in darkness. Not that they fall back into darkness, but we are born walking kind of dark. You know, we're walking in a dark world because we don't know what to make of the world around us. We, we look at it very superficially, very casually, and we say, boy, I just do the best I can. But Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll recognize the truth. You'll recognize the light, and you will be able to follow. Light always defeats darkness. Did you know that? Martin Luther King Jr. said that darkness never dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. Okay? So therefore, if it's pitch black, how much light does it take to light it up? Not a lot. Not a lot. You can be in a pitch black room and, tur- and light up a candle. And all of a sudden, you can see just about everything. You get close enough, you can have light. You have light to see. Light always defeats darkness. Darkness, you cannot compound darkness. You cannot have so much darkness that you can't see the light. Never. Never. It can be pitch black and you hold up a little match, and the darkness can't dispel that light. But the light can dispel the darkness. And so therefore, walk in the light. Not enough darkness in the world can put out the smallest candle. So walk in the light. Micah chapter 7, verse 8 says this, Don't gloat over me, my enemy. Who's our enemy? Satan. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Today, I want you to come to a decision. And the decision I want you to come to today is that the Lord will be your light. 